Hello and welcome to the Athletic Soccer Show. This is the weekend review where we discuss the major talking points from all the weekend's action from across the Atlantic. I'm Jack Collins and I'll be your host and I'm joined by the Athletic's very own Jay Harris. How you doing, mate? I'm doing really good, thanks. Feels like it was a, a weekend filled with a lot of derbies and top of the table clashes, so lots to get stuck into, so I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, mate. I'm good. I've just hopped off a flight back from Bilbao, spent the weekend over there working with athletics. That's been very exciting, um, but we'll get onto that a little bit later on. Today, we're going to talk about El Clasico, where Real Madrid beat Barcelona 3-1 at the Bernabeu, and all the fallout from that, as well as Liverpool's 1-0 win over Manchester City at Anfield. But let's start with the breaking news that Karen Benzema has won the Ballon d'Or for the 2021-22 season. Jake, sometimes the Ballon d'Or is a controversial one and everyone's got an opinion about it, but there were really no arguments to be had with this, where Benzema, or Mercedes Benzema as I like to call him, led <laughs> to a Champions League and La Liga double. He scored 44 times and assisted 15 more in 46 games in all competitions for Real Madrid. He led France to a Nations League triumph at the end of 2021. He scored 10 times and assisted one in 14 games for Le Bleu in competitive games since the start of the European Championships last, last summer. It's, it's just a stunning season it's what what Benzema's done over the last couple of years has been truly incredible and I feel like you can't rightly or wrongly talk about Benzema without mentioning the fact that for many years he kind of felt like the third figure in in Real Madrid's attacking trident you know it was Ronaldo and Bale who almost always took the glory and and Benzema's kind of just considered as the the kind of the, the little brother and I, I don't mean that disrespectfully to him of course so to see the way he's kind of flourished Later on in his career, you know, he's 34, but to see him keep going. And normally when someone wins the Ballon d'Or, you can almost kind of pinpoint it to one or two games in particular. And of course, we know it's all about what Benzema did to, you know, Chelsea and Manchester City in the Champions League last season. He was simply phenomenal. Some of the goals he scored, it felt like he kind of, well, he basically did drag Real Madrid through, <laughs> through to the final by himself almost single-handedly. So yeah. I think... In all competitions, he had 44 goals in 46 games. Real Madrid win La Liga and the Champions League. That's that's simply incredible. So a very, very worthy winner. Yeah, I crunched the numbers a little bit. Um, it's a stunning season, as I said. 60 games for club and country, 54 goals, 16 assists. I really did do some maths. 1.26 <laughs> goal contributions per game across the whole Oof. season. That is consistency in its finest form. And as you say, you add that to the fact that there were big game moments. He was the man that came up big for them time and time again. And I don't know, like, I think it was quite refreshing in some ways to feel like there was only ever going to be one winner here and that people weren't going to necessarily argue with it or, or that, yeah. you know, there were no bigs like, oh, there's absolutely no way he should have won it. Because even last year we were looking at that and thinking, oh, Lewandowski was denied the year before by the cancellation. Should he have won it for that? Are you doing this over a two-year period? Because in which case it's different. Are you doing it over a one-year period? Because in which case, Leo Messi's case is, is completely fair enough. Um, this has just felt like it's been set in stone for so long. The problem is, is that all the, the arguing that would normally take place over the Ballon d'Or has gone on to the Copper Trophy instead, With the, which again, <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure we'll come on to that. But yeah, you're very right. It feels like the first time since, well, before Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi burst onto the scene, really, if burst onto the scene is an appropriate way to describe those two behemoths. No. Where, yeah, there's not been some massive culture war about who deserves to win it, but that's just because, as you said, when you crunch those numbers down, you can't avoid the fact that, that Benzema was, was, was the worthy winner. Yeah, I think that's it. I mean, look, this is the first time since 2006 that neither Cristiano Ronaldo or Leo Messi 
didn't feature in the top 10. It does feel like the end of an era, doesn't it? Definitely. And that's kind of reflective of the fact of, of where they are in their careers. You know, Lionel Messi is no longer the, of course, he's still one of the, the top figures at PSG, but it very much feels like Kylian Mbappe is going to be the, the figurehead of that team. Well, if it doesn't all spiral out of control behind the scenes, that very much feels like it's Mbappe's team, especially because he's French and he grew up in the Banlieues of France. Oh, check me out. In the, in the Banlieues of France, uh, the Banlieues of Paris, rather. I screwed it up trying to be too clever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But you know what I mean? You yeah, know yeah. what I mean? And then obviously Ronaldo's just in this very strange, I wouldn't even call it a transition period at Manchester United. He just came to such big fanfare a year ago and was kind of expected to be the cherry on top of the cake in terms of them kicking on and, and kind of challenging for the title. And it's completely faded away. And now he's been at Man United again for what, just over 15 months. And he's had three managers in that time and constant chaos behind the scenes. So I think that's kind of reflective of where he's at in his career. But having said that, if he performs well at the World Cup, don't be surprised if, if he's back in the top 10 next year because that's what that's what these things hinge on. Well, I'd imagine. And, and if Argentina were to win it, then you'd imagine that exactly. Leo Messi would be also back in that conversation. Um, look, just before we move on to the Copper, Sadio Mane came second after helping Liverpool to a cup double in England and also leading Senegal to an African Cup of Nations triumph, whilst Kevin De Bruyne's form saw him claim his highest ever finish in third. It just looks very reasonable in the actual Wallon, <laughs> doesn't it? You're like, yep, they're the correct probably the correct positions. I'm sure that Liverpool and City fans will be scrapping it out over whether they could have been reversed or not. But, you know, Sadio Mane won two trophies with club and one with his country. De Bruyne won the Premier League title and obviously the amount of assists he got was, was remarkable. It's all just like, yeah, fair enough. This is good, isn't it? Everyone's done well. Yeah, I think the, the sticking point for Kevin De Bruyne is going to be that Man City collapsed in the Champions League again. And yeah. You know, for a player of De Bruyne's talent and for a team that's, you know, blessed with so many talented players that, that Man City are, unfortunately, winning the Premier League title is kind of the bare the bare minimum. So I feel like in order to be crowned the best player player in the world, De Bruyne, yeah, needed to, to win the Champions League to kind of lift his resume a little bit. Whereas, as you said, Mane kind of won on the international stage with, with Senegal, with the AFCON. OK, Liverpool only won two trophies, but they were what, 90 minutes and a single point away from winning just an unprecedented and a, and a historic quadruple. So it feels like very, very fair. But, you know, who knows whether De Bruyne comes back with a vengeance this year. Well, to be fair, next year, Haaland's going to be in the top three, surely, on, on current rate. At current rate, well, at current rate, he's raking every record imaginable. <laughs> but um, then again, a, a chap, you know, the World Cup might well have a say in this, as you say, yeah, and, yeah. and Norway are not going to be there. So it's going to be interesting too. Let's go on to this copper thing then, because the copper is obviously the, the best young player in the world, and it was given to Gavi at Barcelona. Now, I don't think anyone's contending that Gavi is not absolutely sensational because he is a wonderful player. And he proved that again. We'll talk about him in, in our Classico segment. He won, which means he's taken it on from. Pedri handed from Barcelona to Barcelona. They become the first club to obviously win back-to-back Copa awards. Eduardo Camavinga at Real Madrid came second. Jamal Musiala by Munich came third. Jude Bellingham at Borussia Dortmund came fourth. Uh, and Nuno Mensch of PSG came fifth. Then 
Jusko Gavadio and Ryan Gravenbeck joined six. Bakayo Saka came eighth. Karim Adeyemi came ninth. And, and Florian Verts with Bayer Leverkusen, who's unfortunately took a, a massive injury and, and, and really struggled to, to get back after that. Um, he came in at 10. That's probably about fair. And these are probably about the best 10 youngsters in the world. So th there is that to contend with. But there's going to be a lot of discussion about whether Gavi deserved to win this, that Bukayo Saka feels low. Um, yeah, Jude Bellingham at four feels low. Camavinga, obviously, last year for Real Madrid, played a kind of cameo role, starting to work his way into this midfield trio. There will be people that say he's too high considering the amount of minutes he actually played last season compared to someone like Bellingham in four or Nuno Mensch in five, who are very much guaranteed starters for their clubs every single week. It's it's really kind of tricky to, uh, and this is always the case with any kind of award, to kind of really break it down into the finer details because, yes, Kamavinga, as you said, maybe didn't play as many minutes as as, as others on that list. But then I distinctly remember him playing quite a big role in Real Madrid winning the Champions League. And it felt like he always kind of came on in the second half of those knockout games and did make quite a considerable difference. So you're looking at, you know, an 18, 19, 20-year-old who's had this massive move to Real Madrid and he's made a huge tangible impact in some of the biggest games of the world. Jude Bellingham at fourth, I can't understand it just because when you watch him play, he's only 19 years old and he basically runs that Borussia Dortmund team. And you could kind of say the same with Bukayo Saka where okay Arsenal only finished fifth last year although that was still probably an overachievement in the grand scheme of things Saka's kind of pretty much at times carried that Arsenal team in terms of his goal involvement and the way a lot of the creative burden's been on him especially before Odegaard joined the team etc etc so for him to only be eighth if you're looking at it as well well Gabby was playing in a a very very, very good Barcelona team. Saka was shining in an Arsenal team that had its faults. So many things get thrown into the mix. It's like, how do you even how do you even determine it all? But I think they're definitely the right 10 youngsters. It's just any on any given day, you could probably throw all 10 names up in the air and whatever way it lands, it was it was right. So what what can you kind of do at the end of the day? We could spend hours fighting about this. Yeah, no, I think this is it. And and there are always going to be those, especially with youngsters who tend to get fewer minutes. I mean, Gavi probably the exception here um, in, in terms of that. But and Bellingham, as you say, and, and Saka, there are kind of that element of you want to ease youngsters in, especially in, in, in massive teams. And you don't want to be over-reliant on them as, you know, as youngsters. And and so therefore, Real Madrid will say, well, yeah, we're managing his minutes properly. That's what we should be doing. He shouldn't be punished for that. On the other hand, you have players who are already the heartbeat of maybe slightly smaller clubs. And and that's where the, the kind of, you know, I suppose, the, the dichotomy lands as to what's the best thing to do for a youngster and what's the best thing to do in terms of an award like this. But yeah, Gavi, a, a wonderful player and, and it was nice to see Pedri actually hand him the award and, and say some really nice things about him saying he'd like to play with him you know for the rest of his career as a pair which I thought was was a nice touch um just before we move on a word for Alexia Pateas who won the women's Ballon d'Or now Beth Mead came second she obviously won player of the season oh sorry well she did win player of the season with Arsenal but player of the tournament uh, at the European Championships this year so there's been a bit of question marks here Alexia didn't play in the Euro. She obviously injured herself right on the eve of the tournament. But last year, Alexia scored 42 goals, got 21 assists in 54 appearances for Barcelona and Spain. Yes, they lost the Champions League final. And I think there are question marks over why, uh, you know, no one from Lyon, who won obviously the French women's title and the Women's Champions League, was rated higher than seventh where Ada Hegerberg came in. The, the question marks on that, I would say. Um, but 
I don't think there are any question marks over Alexia being probably the best player in the world right now. And we hope she gets back from her injury very, very soon. Okay, let's move on to the weekend. Let's start at Anfield, where, where Liverpool beat Manchester City 1-0 on USA Network. We've become used, Jay, to these games becoming absolute barnstormers. But this felt a bit different, I thought. Not only was it not first against second, as it usually is, but given how the two teams had started the season, it was maybe not given the hype train treatment than it has been in seasons past. What we got was different, but no less enthralling, I thought. What did you make of it overall? Yeah, like you said, it was a, a game we've become so used to featuring two teams at the, the absolute pinnacle of their game. Whereas I think a lot of the the kind of discussion heading into this game was, were Man City going to kind of kick Liverpool even further down? And there was a lot of talk about, you know, Virgil van Dijk's not looking particularly good at all this season. Surely Erling Haaland's going to absolutely tear him tear him to pieces. So it was a little bit strange to... to to see Liverpool, who, as we mentioned earlier, nearly won a quadruple three, four months ago, enter a game like this at Anfield as just such clear underdogs. And I think we've seen a lot of goals and we've seen it be really frenetic in this fixture over the last few years. And it certainly was frenetic, but more in the sense of it was just very combative. There are lots of tackles flying around, a few shirt tugs, uh, which, we, <laughs> which we'll get onto in a second. But... And again, I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll mention this in more depth. It was just a little bit strange to see a Man City team who have, you know, taken everybody who's, you know, every obstacle that's come into their path this season apart, kind of completely switch their tactics around against a Liverpool side, which not only is out of form, but was missing a few key players as well. You know, Matic wasn't available. Trent Alexander-Arnold started on the bench. Ibrahima Konate wasn't fit. It felt like they're probably there for the taking and Man City almost... I don't want to say they took their foot off the gas, but I guess maybe treated Liverpool with the respect we've seen them earn in recent seasons and maybe didn't play the Liverpool team in front of them now. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, what struck me was the lack of wide forwards. City played a sort of three at the back with Foden and Cancelo as, as the wide players. Liverpool used Harvey Elliott and Diogo Jota. I mean, Elliott's a central midfielder who's been sort of shoehorned a little bit into that right-hand side role. Jota is a centre-forward, really, that is playing off the left. He is a versatile one. He has played there lots of times. And it was kind of Marvin Salah through the middle and, and Roberto Firmino behind him in, in in many ways. It's a change from what we've seen. You know, in games like this, you know, Salah is the only real survivor of... You, you think of the classic Man City-Liverpool games over the last few years, and you're going, Sane, Sterling, Mane, yeah. Salah. Salah's like the last sort of bastion, I suppose, of that. And he played through the middle. Yeah. It's quite interesting to see that kind of tactic switch and neither really look to attack those spaces out wide where both have had so much joy down the years. Yeah, and I guess on that note of it almost being a little bit of a change of the guard, I know that Nunez hasn't had the best start to, to his Liverpool career, but it's still quite strange to see, you know, Liverpool really needed a positive result from this game. So to see their, their £80 million signing start on the bench was a little bit strange. But as you mentioned, what Man City were doing in terms of allowing Cancelo to almost play as a, a right winger and moving Foden out to the left, whereas we've seen especially in the beginning, first few games of the season, you know, De Bruyne, Foden and Grealish, some of those combinations out wide on the left were absolutely tearing teams apart. So it was quite bizarre to kind of see Guardiola completely switch it up. And then I guess Klopp needed to recognise that coming into this game, Liverpool weren't in a good position and they 
they've not been at their free-flowing best this season. Yes, they beat Rangers 7-1 in the Champions League in midweek, but can't get carried away off the back of one positive performance. He almost needed to to look at this in a different way. So you've got to get a credit to him for because it looked a little bit bizarre putting some of these players in slightly unfamiliar positions, but it works. Yeah, I mean, what I thought was interesting was that Anfield felt really up for this, you know, and look, there are going to be lots of question marks over the, the, the kind of, I would say, over the top parts of both fan bases. There was some some vandalism from, from the City fans reported by Liverpool. Um, there were reports that Pep said that he was, you know, coins were thrown at him. And obviously all of that is deplorable. Um, but kind of as a general point, let's take away from the kind of extremes that, you know, we don't want to see in the game. It felt like Anfield kind of woke up. For the first time this season and maybe that was that was part of it it felt combative it felt yeah. loud it felt intimidating and, and liverpool felt like they needed that yeah you know it's been a good game when uh whoever's on commentary rolls out the classic lines like you've not seen a premier league classic like this in years blood and thunder you know all those uh all those classic <laughs> uh cl- cliched lines that come come rolling out but yeah it's definitely true the crowd felt really up for it and i think it's important to point out um Man City have a, a really bad record at, at Anfield. I think in the last 22 seasons, they've they've lost 14 times and only won twice. And I think one of those victories was during COVID, so there were no fans in. So as much as we're looking at it thinking, mm, you know, Man City are going to Liverpool, they're in great form, Liverpool on shaky ground here. Liverpool's record at Anfield is still simply phenomenal. You know, Virgil van Dijk still never lost a game at Anfield, um, I think, in front of fans. So that crowd know in that moment our club is on maybe it's a little bit of a stretch to say Liverpool are on their knees at the moment it's definitely a little bit of a stretch they're just going through a poor spell of form yeah they had a bad start I think it's reasonable to be like they they haven't been good so far this season for long yeah yeah but they're not on their knees but no I think those club you know the fans of that club who've got a great reputation anyway in terms of being of creating good atmospheres knew you know this is an opportunity this is a, a chance for us to kind of really get behind the team and, and show how much we support them because they're not doing particularly well at the moment. And it's in a game like this against Holland, against De Bruyne, against Foden, where we re- really need to come through for them. So it definitely paid off. But as you said, there were some deplorable moments from, from both sets of fans reportedly that, that kind of take the shine off it a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned at the start, let's talk about City's disallowed goal. What did you make of it? It's a strange one because it's a foul, but it's not seen in real time. And it's also one of those fouls that's kind of, if that goes with the flow of the game, the referee is kind of letting those kind of things go. It's not necessarily a clear-cut, obvious decision to turn things around. City score from it. Um, And and there's a couple of passes in between that that they open up Liverpool's defence and obviously they put it away. (laughs) It's a really tricky one. I I, I can't quite decide where where I stand on it. I think in another game... I'd understand why the goal was disallowed. But when the the running theme of that game on, on Sunday was that it was combative, that there were a lot of fiery and feisty challenges, Anthony Taylor, who's in charge of the games, kind of set the tone that, you know, he's going to let play continue in those moments. And so for the goal to be disallowed, following a sequence of play like that, when throughout the rest of the game it was kind of allowed, you can really understand Manchester City's frustration because, you know, for for 90, well, 96 minutes of this game, that's been fair play. The one moment we score, it's disallowed. You can completely understand their frustration. Is it a foul? 
Yeah, definitely, because Fabinho has made a pretty clean tackle and, and Haaland's got a tug of his shirt. So from Liverpool's perspective, they're right. But when you look at the wider context of the game and just the kind of way it was being officiated, you can completely understand why Manchester City have every right to be irritated because in that moment, there's been no consistency. Yeah, I think you've put it absolutely spot on. I couldn't have put it there myself. That, that is absolutely excellent. Um, look, the other thing is that Liverpool could and maybe should have scored more, right? Salah got in behind numerous times, a brilliant save from Edison one-on-one. City were opened up a couple of times here. What was different? Because we haven't really seen that against City this season. Do you know what? The, the, Salah, in, the Salah incident, the Salah chance where he goes through on goal and Edison makes a save almost just want to say that's that's like fantastic goalkeeping because it Salah is, pretty yeah. much does everything right in that scenario but score. What confused me more about Liverpool's other chances is when Darwin Nunez came on late on <laughs> and he was sent through a couple of times and on two or three occasions made the wrong decision, um, especially when he opted to take a shot when I think Salah was, was spare at the back post. I just, just couldn't understand it. Yeah. In terms of why that happened... I guess it's just we know that Manchester City like to play with a high line. Um, and certainly, if you look back at some of the highlights, it's not very clear what which defenders are playing where at certain times. Um, because as we know, Cancelo was playing really, really high up on the right wing. But then there were times he was kind of getting dragged when Manchester City were defending back towards left centre-back, left-back positions. There are times where you can see um, Ake and Akanji have almost swapped over. So... Their defensive organisation definitely unravelled a little bit at times. Um, and then again, as I mentioned, they play with such a high line, there's always going to be space in behind. If we're talking about FPL, because, you know, you've got to give it a cheeky mention every now and then. I <laughs> thought this is going to be the one game I'm going to let, I'm going to keep Salah in. And I said to myself, if he doesn't score in this game, he's gone. But I said he will always get chances against this Man City team because of their high line. And I was proven correct. So there yeah. you go. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, nailed on. Um, look, we, we talked about it a little bit at the start, but but two more bits. One narrative of Van Dyke against Haaland. Van Dyke answered his critics quite emphatically here. Shout out to Joe Gomez as well, who's also excellent. It was interesting. I, I saw Rio Ferdinand doing some punditry last week, and he was talking about the attitudes you have when you're a centre-back, and you're going through a little sticky patch of form, and suddenly you come up against a striker who is in an absolute purple patch, and you're thinking opportunity and that's not i think what anybody else has has looked at this before the game and thought everyone's gone oh god you've got Holland coming up against you that's the last thing you want he said that i would look at that and think opportunity because if i can shut down a man who everyone is talking about on being on fire then all of the narrative around me will go away all of this oh he hasn't had a good start to the season will suddenly be shut down and he said that he was kind of expecting Virgil van Dijk to pull out one of those performances and that's exactly what happens. I mean, shout out to Rio Ferdinand for, for looking at it and, and, and seeing that kind of before anybody else did. But also, it's a really interesting point that I thought that no one else was really making. Yeah, do you know what? It, it's a really good point to make because I think part of the part of the reason Van Dijk is, is as good as he is is because he has this just almost like impenetrable aura around him, just as if he knows there's not a single chance that you're that you're getting past me. So when that's chipped on the opening day of the season, when I, when you know you can see the penalty against Alexander Mitrovic with a cheeky little step over, are we already conceding that Alexander Mitrovic is a better striker than Erling Haaland at this point? Because that that, that seems like a you're, put, you're, you're putting words <laughs> in my mouth. But when, when you've got a, when you start the season with a moment like that, of course it can throw doubts into anybody's mind. 
But the best players get over that. But then when the rest of your team's not playing particularly well, and yeah, those wider questions get asked week in, week out, it's a good point to make to think that actually Van Dyke wants to set the record straight and he doesn't want to set the record straight in a in an FA Cup game or an EFL Cup game. He wants to go against the pest and prove his worth. And, you know, certainly Van Dyke had to work hard on Sunday. And that's not something we're really that used to. Van Dyke's one of those players who, if you actually look at his metrics, he doesn't make a lot of tackles. Um and he doesn't really get involved in in that many duels because his positioning's normally always very good. And then obviously you have to factor into account Liverpool are going to have more possession than their opponents. But we don't see Van Dijk making sliding tackles all the time. We normally see him on his feet. So the fact there were times where he was, you know, at full tilt and making slide tackles and, you know, bouncing off Haaland and that kind of stuff. That was fantastic to see because it said to me this was a player who was up for the fight from minute one, knew he kind of had to put himself about and couldn't switch off for a minute. But... You shouted him out. I've got to praise Joe Gomez because he's someone who I feel, I really feel for. Because ever since he kind of came through at Charlton and then got the move to Liverpool, he's constantly had some sort of, of injury issue. And it feels like he's finally coming back into, you know, a spell of form where he's not been, um, you know, disrupted by any sort of issue. So he's already played seven Premier League games this season. He got eight last year. And he got seven the year before. So he's on course to make the most Premier League appearances comfortably in the last two, three years. Still only 25 years old. And yes, there were times where Haaland's positioning caught him out and stuff. But there were many times where Gomez helped out Van Dijk as well. And Gomez has also been playing a lot at right back recently. So to mm -hmm. all of a sudden get shifted to centre back against not just the best striker in the league, but arguably the best striker in the world like you said, shouts out to him as well because it was a, it was a fantastic performance and I saw quite a few places gave him man of the match and, and deservedly so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like kind of last thing and, and kind of more generally on Liverpool, is this a game that suited them? And if so, where does that leave us with Liverpool as a kind of gen, general kind of point? Where does it, where does it leave us stuck? Because, we mentioned the kind of possession thing. Most teams are going to sit back and wait for Liverpool and say, come on then, break us down. In this game, Liverpool sat deep. They had 36% possession and they tried to catch out City on the break. And they did so numerous times. Liverpool aren't going to have that game very often. And so in some ways, you know, it, it suited them to be able to play a little bit more like what Klopp started Liverpool out as. You know, they, they mm. started out as this kind of gritty, counter-punching side. You know, the heavy metal football, the counter-press, <laughs> all of that, that we knew right at the beginning. And then over time, as you naturally would, they've developed into a, a more cohesive attacking unit. They can, you know, strangle teams. They can push teams out. This feels like a, a game that isn't going to come around all that often. And so if Liverpool are going to become this kind of gritty counter-punching side, they might well do very well in Europe, for example, yeah. where the games are actually a little bit more fraught in that regard. But where does it leave them in terms of the Premier League? Because you look at the table now, obviously, and they are ninth. They are eighth, actually, I apologise. Um, and they're only a couple of points off the top four. You know, they've got a game in hand, so it leaves everything a little bit up in the air. The, the Premier League table is quite hard to read at the moment mm -hmm. because four of the top eight, have have games in hand and and so you're trying to kind of work out how those go but they're not miles behind are they back in contention or is this a game that suits them and therefore they're still going to have to deal with the problems that have been plaguing them through the rest of the season 
Yeah, it was certainly a game that suited them for the reasons that we, we've already mentioned. We know that Man City play with a with a really, really high line, so there's going to be space in behind. We know that Guardiola just has a tendency to overthink games, uh, uh, overthink his tactics in games against quite big opponents. And then I obviously already mentioned that, that Man City don't have a particularly good record at Anfield. I don't think they were ever, they were never not in contention for for top four, um, but those issues have not have not gone away whatsoever. You know, I think they play West Ham United on on Wednesday, and they're going to have to kind of approach that game in a in a completely different way to the one that, yeah. the way that they approach Manchester City. Also touched upon the fact they haven't got a lot of options at the moment with injuries. You know, James Milner put in a fantastic performance at right back against Manchester City, but you can't do that week in week out. Um, you're still going to have those kind of question marks about. Trent Alexander-Arnold because when, even when he came on at the week at the weekend, he almost came on in a in a centre mid role. I wasn't really too sure what what his job was other than to to chase the ball down, but I guess that was necessary in the moment. Um, still got issues in central midfield about the right balance, and then you've still got to consider the fact they are a team that's that's in transition. They're moving away from from Mane. They're trying to breed Carvalho and Elliot. They're trying to sort out Nunes up front. Those issues don't sort themselves out overnight. They take time. And when you've got extra pressure on top of that, every tiny mistake, the kind of pressure just keeps on getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So I still think this team's got quite a few games and months ahead before we kind of fully see them be really cohesive and kind of iron out a lot of the issues they're facing at the moment. Yes, of course, but that doesn't take away from what was a wonderful result for Liverpool at the weekend. Uh, and then, of course, there was El Clasico, where Barcelona were beaten 3-1 by Real Madrid in the Spanish capital on ESPN+. It's been a dreadful week for Barcelona, Jay. All but eliminated from the Champions League on Wednesday by Inter in that game that they drew 3-0 and now hammered by their biggest rivals in Spanish football's showpiece game. Where did it all go wrong? <laughs> It's Barcelona are really just a, you know, a bizarre club. Um, we're in the middle of October. I think Barcelona had one of their annual general meetings just a, just a week or two ago. And there was a lot of talk about the, the success of the, the various economic levers they pulled in the summer that kind of enabled them to, you know, make a little bit of a risk and kind of gamble some of their future earnings to ensure that they had a, a team that was competing in the here and now and a good team that was competing in the here and now. And that eventually, if that team was was performing and winning games and winning trophies, some of those financial issues would almost kind of solve themselves. And it's taken two games in a few in a matter of few days to kind of absolutely crush all that hope and send, you know, people in Barcelona talking about more economic levers being pulled and them having to sign more players in January. I think the best way to sum up Barcelona in that game is actually what happened afterwards when John Laporta went into the the officials' room and kind of complained about a few incidents. That just sounds like the the kind of the behaviour of a man who knows things are, are, are spiralling out of his control in that moment. But in terms of what actually happened on the pitch, I think we saw a lot of the same things we saw when they, they drew through all of Inter Milan during, during last week, where just defensively there, they can be an absolute shambles at a time. You know, Eric Garcia making... I think quite high profile mistakes in in both games and just if you look at um Benzema's goal against Barcelona look at the way but look at the way Barcelona's back four is organized at that moment in time I think the two fullbacks are really high up the two center backs are really deep 
which just allows Vinicius to obviously run down that left wing. It's just chaotic organisation and it's own. I get it. Any derby game is going to be frenetic and especially the first 10 minutes if you're away from home. But to kind of leave that gap open for Vinicius to just sprint into after 10 minutes, you're kind of asking for trouble. So Barcelona as a club, just they've pulled all these all these stunts um, to kind of get these these players into and to have a team that's cohesive. But you look at Real Madrid and they just seem organised and structured. Yes, they've got some absolute crown jewels thrown in there, but Barcelona, it just seems scattergun. And I guess, again, to 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 go even one one point further, you don't buy Robert Lewandowski at his age, at that price, to score goals against Mallorca or Celta Vigo. That's a prerequisite. That's a given. You buy Lewandowski to score in crucial moments against Inter Milan, against Real Madrid, and he's not done those things. So you kind of have to ask questions in that regard because you've got all these players who, in the biggest moments, have felt to deliver. I mean, to be fair to him, he did actually bag twice against Inter, but you know, I completely you know you know what I mean though. And there's a big miss from him in this game, right? He is offside when it comes through, but but, he definitely doesn't know that. It's on a plate. It's Lewandowski bread and butter, and he somehow spoons it over the bar. And and I think this is interesting. I mean, there's two things here. One is the injuries, and at the back, Barcelona are in trouble. You know, Ronald Araujo has been injured since September he's not back till December after the World Cup really it looks like and that's a major a major blow for them he's been massive uh, in this kind of rebuild Hector Bellerin has been injured um, since September the 27th and Andreas Christensen did his ankle at the start of October now you combine those things with the six games that Inter that the Inter game was the first game of so it was the Inter game which was basically Champions League on the line then El Clasico this week they have Villarreal at the new Camp then they have Athletic, who have started the season brilliantly at the new Camp. Then they have Bayern in the Champions League. And then they have to go away to Valencia at the end of October. They are six absolutely massive games for Barcelona. And they have drawn the game they needed to win the Champions League against Inter. And then have now lost their Clasico. There is going to be big questions here about can they bounce back? Now, look, the Bayern game in the Champions League may well not matter because Inter beating Victoria Pizzegna, as we expect, would mean that ultimately Barcelona cannot qualify anyway. Anyway, But you look at these league games, Villarreal, Athletic, Valencia. These are teams who have all started the season relatively well, um, who have you know, had varying degrees of success, who are big teams in Spain or have had success in recent years. And actually the big question mark for me now is how they go into these games and how they perform in these games, especially with that injury list, because they're three points behind Real Madrid right now in the league. That's not necessarily an issue. That will probably, probably be okay. If they can stay three points behind Real Madrid by the time that the World Cup comes around, they'll feel relatively comfortable that they will have an opportunity to claw that back in the second half of the season. But if they go into the international break nine points behind Real Madrid, they will be in real trouble. Yeah, exactly that. And I think, you know, you kind of mentioned about Valencia and Athletic and and those teams that that Barcelona have to come up against in the next couple of weeks. Those teams will absolutely relish the possibility to kind of kick Barcelona at a time when they're they're not doing particularly well. And I think when Barcelona go through these, these moments where they lose two in a week, it just turns into an absolute crisis. 
So it's not just about managing what happens on the pitch. It's also about managing what's happening off the pitch. Because I've, as I've mentioned, Johan Laporte is barging into to the referee's room. There's talk about buying new signings in January. It's just taken two games for it to turn into an absolute circus and an absolute farce again. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if it's not too long before questions start being asked about Xavi and is he tactically savvy enough, et cetera, et cetera. You know that what we're seeing now is potentially just the seeds of another absolute calamity or a disaster in a month's time if they don't pick up the necessary points in those games you've touched upon. Yeah, but I, I think this is the question. Where does it leave Xavi? Because obviously the injuries are huge right now, and that's a fair point to make in his defence. But he's not finding solutions, and this tendency to crumble in big games is not going away. And you look at this game, right? And you know, Let's look at it at a tactical level a little bit. The midfield battle completely dominated by Madrid. Modric shut down the Busquets passing lanes, which basically meant the Barcelona couldn't play out from the back. And we saw quite a lot of um, Testegen going long to Lewandowski and him being shepherded out of the game by Eden Militao, who's absolutely excellent. Tony Kroos basically didn't let De Jong play through most of this. And, and that's unfair on Frankie because he, he played quite well, but he was just outclassed by Tony Kroos, who had a stunning game as well. Um, and then Chiuameni and Valverde basically shut down Pedri. And the fact that, you know, the, the Balde couldn't get forward enough to actually make Valverde work in the first half meant that Valverde was able to come inside and double team Pedri with, with Chiuameni for, for a lot of it. Then when Balde did move forward... Pedri got a little bit of joy from dropping into that kind of half space on, on that left-hand side. And then Chiumeni was like, right, we're not having that. And basically shepherded him around the pitch. And, and that was where the, the kind of battle was won. The spaces in behind for Barcelona are dreadful. Garcia, as you said, looks shaky. Kunde did okay, but he was coming back from an injury. PK made that mistake against Inter. And they look so weak defensively right now. They're split apart almost at will. And then suddenly, right, Gavi comes off the bench. He's dropped for this game because of what happened in the intergame and the fact that the midfield was was kind of a little bit bypassed. They had no bite in the middle. Gavi came on, made like four tackles in 10 minutes, made a real difference. And now it looks like a mistake leaving him on the bench for this game. And people are starting to question whether Xavi is ready for this role and can actually put a cohesive team together because right now we haven't seen that in these two big games. Yes, injuries play a part but also manage the games you've got and manage the team you've got in front of you. And I think he's made major mistakes in these two massive games. But it's not just Gabby, right? You know, Ansu Fetti and Ferran Torres come come off the bench and they, they combine for, for Barcelona's goals. So you could make an argument about, you know, he kind of started the wrong people in this match. And, you know, we have to recognise that Xavi's still at the very, very early days in, of his coaching career, although he was, you know, an absolutely fantastic footballer on the pitch and had one of the most insane careers going He's still a really, really ridiculously young coach. So he's going to make mistakes. Yeah. But it's just, are you going to be afforded the opportunity to, to learn from them at Barcelona? That's kind of the risk you take when you take a take a job of this magnitude. You know that if you don't quickly rectify what happens in these games, then you know, you're in real danger. I guess we can't expect Xavi to learn so many lessons from Inter Milan to then take into Real Madrid just because of the short space between those games. Yeah. But I guess this is the period where he looks at those next fixtures coming ahead and says, hmm, I got it wrong in those two games. There was a little, there was a lack of bite or there was a lack of running in behind or this combination doesn't quite work or, you know, I need to find some sort of different solution to, to Eric Garcia at the back because he's not looked particularly good. Mm. And if he makes those choices and they pay off, that's the sign of a, that's the sign of a coach who's learning. If he kind of sticks to what he's doing at the moment and it doesn't work, that's that's when he really could be in trouble. Yeah, I mean, for just for clarity, there is absolutely nothing I think that 
Barcelona should do less than than get rid of Xavi. I think he needs to be afforded <laughs> the time to, to make a team. But I do think you can ask legitimate questions about his decisions yeah. in the last two games. The substitutes in the intergame were bad. And then the changes that he made to this lineup, I don't think worked. Now, I think Ansu's obviously coming back from injury. They're managing his minutes fine. But there are a lot of things going on here that you go, I'm just not sure why in a game where there is that snap and you want that kind of midfield battle to be to be won by someone flying and thundering into challenges to leave your most aggressive presser in Gavi on the bench felt like a huge error. And it just didn't feel like Barcelona had any bite in this first half. And I think that was to do with, with his absence. I mean, just a word on Real Madrid, because actually I think we talked a lot about Barcelona. And all, <laughs> you do actually talk a lot about the team loses I think when you talk about these big games but Real Madrid are top of the league they haven't lost a game they've qualified already for the Champions League knockout stages and they're rolling along nicely they haven't skipped a beat Angelotti is remarkable but more than that we're seeing Real Madrid in a kind of slow gradual rebuild right we're seeing them come to the end of the period where Kroos, Casemiro and Modric played together all the time we're coming into a period where Chuameni and Kamavinga are starting to come in and be a key part of this team we're seeing a team who lost their kind of starting right winger and have just basically shoved Fede Valverde in there and he's just turned into like the best versatile player in the world <laughs> it doesn't matter where he plays he is an absolute hero you know he, he comes up he big game Fede came out again mm. he's like the exact opposite to everyone at Barcelona big game <laughs> Federico Valverde steps up whenever he is needed for Real Madrid and he's done it again here um it's just really really impressive how they've managed this rebuild how they've managed a lot of things they have big depth like things in the middle they have Furlong Mendy who came in and was excellent he you know we've seen Alaba play on that left hand side before he can do a job there you're seeing the break glass in terms of you know, emergency Antonio Rudiger stepping in Militao and Alaba have a real nice relationship Carver Howell's out there still ticking along nicely everything just seems kind of calm at Madrid everything seems serene and Ancelotti's just there being like yeah it's fine we're just we're just good it's it's it sounds almost strange to say it out loud because I grew up in an era where Real Madrid were you know prime Galacticos era and they were just buying people for the fun of it. But I guess the key difference you could say about Barcelona and Real Madrid at this period in time is that it feels like yeah Madrid's evolution has been quite detailed and and quite thought out. Even going back to signing Eduardo Camavinga last year in kind of preparation for what was going to happen with with the midfield in in kind of moving on from that old guard as you touched upon and then two or many coming in it just feels like they had a coherent plan in terms of this is where the squad needs to be improved this is this is what's going to be a big issue but if we try and change everything dramatically all at once then we're going to kind of run into to issues so we're going to try and try and stay ahead of the game whereas with Barcelona it feels like everything they do at the moment is just a reaction to what's happened in their last match you know they're constantly like well, we conceded too many goals in this game, so we'll buy this defender. Or we didn't score enough goals, so we'll go out and buy Lewandowski. It just feels too too knee-jerk, too reactionary to actually be sustainable to any long-term success. It might it might work in the short term, but long-term, Real Madrid will kind of play it, will, will, will win. And that's kind of what we're, we're seeing at the moment. Now, imagine if you're a Barcelona fan, it's absolutely terrifying to think that Chiumeni has slotted in so seamlessly. Camavinga, at some point, you'd imagine, will take over from either Kroos or Modric and that Fede Valverde can just drop back into midfield and they're in the conversation for Jude Bellingham. It's just like, oh gosh, yeah. you know, when do they stop? And actually being managed in this way is is quite remarkable. I saw a stat the other day that Real Madrid have signed more players under the age of 25 than any other club in the last 10 years or so. 
And that is, you know, the sign of a team that's, who are looking at the future. And that's something is a sign of a well-managed squad. Um, even if that's some of them crazy. Yeah. That's, that's just crazy to think, because as I said, a lot of people are always going to have this image of, of Real Madrid as being the team that, you know, bought Real Madrid, bought Cristiano Ronaldo and Kaka in the same summer for, for like world record fees and that they almost, you know, they were given all this money and then they just kind of splashed it around frivolously. Whereas Barcelona, it felt like with a team who were a little more clever with how they used their money and kind of had a, a bigger emphasis on, on bringing free graduates from the Masia. So, of course, that's still the case for Barcelona. But to see Real Madrid are kind of the ones who are leading the way in terms of actually buying younger talent from other teams and integrating them nicely for a, a longer term plan. Whereas you're seeing Barcelona sign Robert Lewandowski and players like Marcus Alonso, older players and players who in Alonso's case and Hector Bellerin as well are not necessarily got the best records in the last few years. Again, it just smacks of a team that's kind of just winging it. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, look, Roman just still spending money. They spent big on Chiromeni. They spent big on Camavinga. They're just doing it on projects that seem to be longer and they will probably have resale value if they don't work out. And, yeah. and that's something you just can't say the same for at Barcelona. Uh, right, let's go around the grounds. Now I'm going to stay in La Liga to start in Bilbao, where I've spent the weekend. Um, I was at San Mamesa's Athletic Club, lost 1-0 to Atletico Madrid. And Jay, in, in, in some ways, I feel like I've been baptised in Cholismo. I didn't obviously want Atletico to win this game. I was there working with Athletic Club, but it wasn't pretty. It was quite a stodgy game and it was Simeone essence in a bottle. It's like a footballing <laughs> rite of passage, right? Atletico were far and away the better side in the first half of this. They went 1-0 up just after the Blake and Trang Griezmann scored. And then it was like Simeone was like, I'm just going to do, I'm just going to wind the crowd up. Jan Oblak spent about 15 minutes on the floor before he was eventually <laughs> substituted. Uh, there were, you know, people around the ref at all given time. Simeone got booked really early on. Uh, there was a horrible challenge at one point from Jimenez on Iñaki Williams. We basically just like absolutely lashed out at him. I just felt like I was watching football over the last like 10 years like in its purest form for Simeone. Like I, I, it was like, you just got the, the, the Atletico Madrid essence under Cholo and been like ego. There you go. And, and the, the athletic crowd did not like it at all. They absolutely couldn't stand it. There is, <laughs> there is a long history between Cholo Simeone and an athletic club. And I had the most amazing weekend understanding the club and, and, and Stein and we were making a documentary about them and learning about basically that connection between the region and, and the club and the fans. And it's all very, you know, it's an incredible thing that's going on at Athletic. And then to kind of go and watch this and be like, oh, Simeone's just done what he does was just quite, quite, quite remarkable. Um, but an incredible weekend, even if it wasn't the result we we're looking out for. No, that's awesome. Maybe Simeone knew you were in town and he was like, you know, I'm just going to absolutely rain on your parade. Yeah, well, it did feel like they felt like he was trying to rain on the parade of every single athletic <laughs> club fan in the stadium, and and he did so. Um, it was the the place was very very loud with whistles for most of it, <laughs> is how I would put it. Um, good wins for Real Betis, Real Sociedad, and Villarreal, who all won to capitalise on that athletic loss. The gap between third and seventh is just four points in La Liga. Very exciting, uh, and Sevilla's renaissance under Jorge Sampaoli continues. They held their own twice against Athletic and. Dortmund in the last seven days and then they finally got that win to lift them clear of the bottom beating Mallorca at 1-0 I wouldn't say they're good yet but they're definitely improving and and that's I think all that Sevilla could ask for after the start to the season that they had 
Um, in France, PSG won Le Classique against their bitter rivals Marseille with Neymar scoring the game's only goal. There was, of course, a red card. When is there not? When PSG and Marseille <laughs> meet. But Christophe Galtier lost his head a bit when he was asked about the Mbappe situation after the game. He's got a point in his anger, I thought. It was really interesting. He was like, you know, I come in to talk about football and we spend 13 of the 15 minutes talking about rumours. And then when I tell you there's no problem, you write that there's a problem anyway. He really did kind of, you know, head exploded a little bit. But I, I thought... He had a point. I was like, yeah, you know, that, that is interesting. Obviously, journalists are going to want to know about the rumours. And Mbappe's story is massive, and that's fine. But he was like, I want to talk about the game. We've just won. And everything I kept getting asked is, is Mbappe happy? He's like, All I can say is, in training, I can see that he is working hard. He wants his team to win, and he's doing his best to improve. I can't tell you any more than that. Unfortunately, that's the that's the life of a, of a football manager. I've obviously been in a in a lot of press conferences over the last... 18 months or so and there, there are lots of times where you can see managers get get riled up by questions but that's that's the nature of the job and as you said this is not just any player this is Kylian Mbappe who's been yeah. anointed for for many years as kind of the the heir to the the Cristiano Ronaldo and, and Lionel Messi throne so it I can understand it be completely frustrating for him after a game like that against your against you know arguably your biggest rivals who've, who've started the season pretty well to win in that fashion um, because they probably should have won by a lot more. Um, Marseille's defending was absolutely atrocious. <laughs> yeah, was absolutely atrocious at times. So he's probably going in with a with a pretty good vibe. So for it to kind of get crushed a little bit by the reporters, you can understand his frustration. But unfortunately, it, it comes with a territory. He only has to look at who who else has managed PSG in the last few years to see that they've also had issues with with dressing room spats and rumours and things like that. You know, when you when you look after players who are that talented, unfortunately, that's what happens. Yeah, there are always going to be those questions. Uh, Laurent Blanc returned to management after a long hiatus. He's been playing golf, I assume, um, taking the hot <laughs> at Leon. But it was a bad start for them. They lost three two to Rennes. It was a really really good game. Uh, Laurent and Lorient continue to keep the pace up in the race of those Champions League spots. Laurent's won one nil again. Lorient a little bit unlucky not to get more than a nil nil draw against Adrien, who were reduced to nine men and Jonathan David got another brace as Lille won three nil away at Strasbourg he is having some start to this season Jay and he's gonna be going to the World Cup it, it's all kind of one of those you're like oh could be a big Jonathan David breakout season yeah definitely because because when, when he first joined Lille I remember there were kind of like a lot of rumors at the time potentially linking him with Premier League clubs so it kind of felt like oh you know he's going to go over to, to France and just hit the ground running straight away and Maybe wrongly, you're just assuming oh, he'll be in the Premier League in a year or whatever. So when it didn't quite work out that way and he had a slightly slower, slower start than some people expected, mm. thinking, OK, I hope he still kind of kicks on and kind of fulfills his potential. And I think we're seeing that. And if you're, you know, Canadian, you're probably like absolutely buzzing with optimism at the moment that you're you're going into a tournament where you've got players like Alfonso Davies and Jonathan David who are playing for top clubs in Europe in, in really good form. So it's exciting to see. Yeah, I think so. It's um, It was big shoes to fill at Leo. Obviously, he, he kind of was signed to, to replace Victor Ossiman after he was signed by Napoli for a big sum of money, you know, near the 80 million euro mark. So it, there were big, big pressures on, on Jonathan David. And he was playing well without scoring for a while, but he does feel like he's 
he's really started to to get that goal scoring net back underway. And Lille have had a bit of an indifferent start to the season. They're seventh or so, I think, in Liga, and yet he has started the season very well, and that's that's nice to see. Um, Serie A saw some interesting results. Roma edged another win, one nil tonight, to jump into fourth spot. They overtook Lazio, which they'll be delighted about. Uh, they could not overcome Udinese, but who can these days? To be fair, they lost Chiro Mobile to injury, though that'd be a big blow for Lazio. Obviously, um, just one of those players that continually scores for them. He's now one of Serie A's record goal scorers, um, you know, kind of ever. He is a player who has thrived uh, at Lazio and is absolutely loved in the capital by those of, of a Lazio persuasion. So that's a big loss for them. Dusan Vlavic scored. He scored a goal. And that goal meant that Juventus took local bragging rights, restored a bit of pride, I thought, Jay, in the Turin derby after a tough week for the club. Um, he'll be delighted with that. There's some really interesting reports this week that Dusan Vlavac is always the last player to leave training. He is the one, you know, who, who is trying to get this team clicking again. And, and it's nice to see for a young player who came with a big price tag. Sometimes that comes with a lot of ego. He looks like he's a player who just wants to make things work and, and wants to make the rest of the team work around him. And that's something Juventus fans can cling on to. To be honest, you just took the words right out of my mouth there. The fact that you're you're hearing a young player do that um, and kind of be the driving force behind a team that's going through a really indifferent spell would be really encouraging for for any Juventus fan. The fact that you've got someone who's clearly invested in the project. You know, Vlahovic, such a, a talented player. If he continues to score at the rate that he does, it's, you know, questions are going to continuously be asked about, is he going to leave to go to a different league one day? So the fact that he's clearly... Yeah, so determined to kind of pull this team out single-handedly, it seems, out of this this kind of poor run of form that they're in at the moment. You'd be delighted if you're a Juventus fan hearing that. Yeah, double whammy because uh, Fede Chiesa looks like he is starting to return to full training. There were videos of him shooting last week in training. So I imagine that Juve fans can, can cling on to those two youngsters, both, of course, taken from Fiorentina, which will an annoy pretty much any Viola fan listening <laughs> to this podcast. It still winds me up to a point. Um, Napoli maintained their spot at the top of the table with a brilliant 3-2 win over Bologna. Could and should have been more. Napoli were excellent again um defensively a wee bit suspect but over the course of this game probably should have got five or six they are such an attacking force and milan left it late they won 2-1 in verona to keep the pressure on with sandra tonali scoring the crucial goal in that one he had a habit of, of popping up with important goals last season as they won the title and he seems to be carrying that on into the new season uh, two goals either side of halftime and atalanta saw off the sassuolo challenge to stay breathing down napoli's neck and jay into one again huge couple of weeks these were for them. They've passed every test, both in the Champions League and in Serie A. Simone Inzaghi had major questions. He has answered those critics and fair play to doing for him for, for doing so in such style because there were genuine kind of thoughts at the start of this international break that Inzaghi could be fired during it by Inter and they've come out of it absolutely kicking. Yeah, and we've said, you know, over the last couple of months when, when Inter have kind of been a little bit up and down, especially when they've been missing Romelu Lukaku, that they just had to kind of grit their teeth and, and find some somehow find a route route through this tough period because that's what the that's what good teams do, especially if you're hunting for the title. You're not going to have it all your way throughout the course of the season. And it seems like that's what they've done. Obviously, the only if I was nitpicking, the only slight downer on the last couple of weeks is that they didn't, you know, didn't win 4-3 against Barcelona. But that's if I'm being really, really picky. But no, it's definitely good to kind of see that it feels like they've turned a little bit of a corner and, and 
you know, international breaks, they're, they're often kind of presented as a, as a make or break period because the manager even, it, the manager's either fired or, you know, the manager's got two weeks to get the team together during the international break. And depending on how results go after that, you know, he might, he might be, might be sat. So it feels like those two weeks are kind of giving him an opportunity to, to kind of rethink his, his approach and stuff. And it's paid off. Yeah, just hit that reset button a little bit. Um, in Germany, Union Berlin beat Dortmund to stay top of the Bundesliga. This was such a mature performance. They know exactly what they're doing. They capitalise on mistakes. They defend like Trojans. It's brilliant to see. It really, really is. They are setting the tone in the Bundesliga. And they might be the only team in the league that truly know how to keep consistent clean sheets. That's a good thing to start with if you're looking to get the title. So fair play. Shout out to Union Berlin. Keeping things exciting in Germany. Me, um, because Bayern absolutely thumped Freiburg 5-0. They needed a result like this. Freiburg had been ahead of them in the table and playing really well, but Bayern just sort of turned on the style, paid off. They're still clear favourites to win the title, but these are the two teams that everyone's talking about, Union Berlin and Bayern Munich, who have opposite ends of the economic spectrum. You know, very, very different sides in how they how they do things, but it's going to be an interesting thing. I really do hope Union can keep this title race up. Um, we, we talked about Xabi Alonso's good start for Leverkusen last week. That has not continued. Uh, <laughs> Leverkusen humbled by Eintracht 5-1. He has a lot of work to do. Been really interesting comments from players and coaches alike. I think Kerem Demabai came out and was like, mentally, we're not there. Mentally, yeah. we, we don't know how to win every week. This team do not know how to do it. Xabi has a massive, massive job in his hands to turn this around. They don't have a midweek game this week as an opportunity for him to just sort of be like, right, we need to resort this out. And we said last time out, yes, it was, you know, yes, they won 4-0, but it was Schalke. Schalke continued to sort of be an absolute free fall. Um, and they've had bad results in both the Champions League and now in this game against Frankfurt. So, yeah, he, he's got he's got work to do here. And, and, and quite a lot of it sounds like it might well be in terms of like team spirit and mentality. Yeah, but also... Well, first, I think Demirbay used a stronger language as well, um, which I'm not too sure if I'm allowed to repeat or not, so I won't. <laughs> but also, you know, at one point, they were one all in this game, and then they conceded three goals in 14 minutes in the second half. And I think yeah. that's what he was alluding to. It's a team that any time a team does that, you've got to ask questions about their, their kind of like their mental discipline and, and if they're fragile or not. So, yeah, well done for, for winning against Schalke 4-0 last week, but this is the kind of like the harsh reality check. And just going back to, to Bayern and Union Berlin, Sane has you know, suffered a hamstring against, against Freiburg. And it seems like he's going to be... So I think he tore his upper thigh muscle. Um, I can't, can't think what the specific wording is. But it doesn't sound like a good injury. It sounds like he could be out for at least a month. And obviously, one, you then ask questions about is he going to be fit in time World for Germany Cup. at the World Cup, which Whoa. would be absolutely horrendous because... Sane's renaissance over the last year or two um, after he obviously had that big injury at Manchester City um, has been phenomenal to watch. But then also he has been probably Bayern's star player this season. Well, maybe Musiala. So to then lose him is going to be a, not a massive blow, but definitely a blow to, to what they're trying to achieve this season as well. So it'll be interesting to see how, how that one plays out. Yeah, it's a real shame. I mean, we saw a few of these this weekend. Um, obviously, Diogo Jota stretched off in the Liverpool Man City game Reece, really, really Reece hard. James. Reece James, you know, looking like he might be touch and go. And now Leroy Sane, the list goes on. And as the closer we get to the, the World Cup, it's like, you just don't want to see these things happen. And it really does feel harsh, you know, at this point for the, for these players who've worked so hard to get there. 
work so hard to be part of these squads uh, and, and now sweating on their fitness ahead of it. I, I do really feel for them. Um, so best wishes to everyone in terms of getting better as soon as possible. I think um, Mason Matt was asked about this at the weekend, actually. And I think he said, you know, I'm still, I want to play every game and I want to tackle every game with like 110% um, kind of like effort and application, which I thought was, yeah, credit to him for coming out and saying that because I'm sure there are other players who are a little more hesitant about it all. Um, but obviously, I guess, what you know, even if the, the World Cup was in the summer, I guess there's a risk that players are going to get injured in the final few weeks of the season when they're competing for titles and trophies and stuff. But I guess when... Schedule doesn't because, feel quite as congested then, does yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. That's the point I was going to make. When the schedule's this congested, you can't help but feel having the World Cup in the middle of the season is going to contribute to an extra few injuries, which is which is horrible because for some players, probably more so from you know countries who players who are not in the top leagues, so they don't play in the Premier League week in week out or Serie A or the Bundesliga. Playing in a tournament like that can like make or break your career. It can kind of really set you on a on a completely different level. So if because of the schedule you're playing an extra game a week for a month and you, you suffer a hamstring injury and you're you're ruled out of the tournament, that's got that's that's like devastating, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's gonna hurt. It's gonna hurt. And so fingers crossed that everyone gets through these next few weeks happy and healthy. I know that's um I know that's a lot to ask, but but um, <laughs> alas, we're gonna have to. Um well finally in the Premier League, uh, Arsenal maintained their top their grip on top spot with a hard fought win over a very spirited Leeds United. Leeds were really good here, I thought, Jay. But this Arsenal team are different. They fight, they scrap, they get through it. They are four clear at the top of the table. I've got a, a different phrase to describe Arsenal in that game, and that's 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 lucky. Um, I've obviously, you know, watched Leeds play uh, against Brentford a couple of months ago under Jesse Marsh, and they're a very chaotic team at times because they're just so full-blooded, they're so full of energy that there are going to be times where it overwhelms teams. It's there's going to be times where it probably overwhelms them because they're almost like an excitable little puppy just running around in all manner of directions, and they almost need to rein it in. But having said that, I think against Arsenal, they were pretty superb even from minute one. Really, um, really rattled Arsenal playing out from the back. And there were a lot of times where, you know, Tommy Yasu didn't look particularly comfortable or, or, yeah. or William Saliba didn't look particularly comfortable. It's probably one of Saliba's weaker games since he's kind of started playing yeah, for Arsenal at the beginning of this season. So Arsenal were definitely very lucky. And then obviously the, the goal itself just becomes comes from a... <laughs> An absolutely bizarre mistake from from Rodrigo trying to make a crossfield switch without looking, but there were positives to take for Leeds in this game. Whereas I think in the last couple of months or so they've not, well maybe the last month or so they've not played particularly well. Uh, but having Bamford back, even if he did miss a penalty and had a goal disallowed, um, once he's kind of fully up to fitness, because well, if he ever gets back to full fitness, maybe that sounds harsh, but he's just had such a such a tricky time with it over the last year 18 months or so um it's bizarre to think the last time he scored that game i was there and it was against brentford in december last year uh, and he injured himself celebrating so that's the kind of luck that bamford has um but he certainly looked really good when he came on at half time in that game but to arsenal well done for even with some late var controversy and a red card in the 96th minute which was overturned somehow escaping with with a point, let alone three, because had they lost that game, I don't think they could have complained too much. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting now for Leeds. They have Leicester away in the midweeks and then they have Fulham at home. 
uh, next Sunday. So it's going to be a, they're, they're two games they will look at and think, right, if we can put that kind of performance in against Arsenal, we should mm. be able to get four points out of these two uh, as a minimum. And so that's going to be an interesting six, six points. Guaranteed six points at Craven Cottage. <laughs> it's not at Craven Cottage at Ellen Road. We'll oh. <laughs> yeah, we got you. Got you. Um, Spurs went level on points with City after 2 0 win over Everton. More results for Conte, more sterner stuff scenes for Spurs. They're just incredibly hard to beat. Uh, and a massive win for Brentford, Jay. There were a lot of very happy fans in TWA on Friday night after they beat Brighton 2 0. None happier, I imagine, than Matthew Benham uh, with his little <laughs> rivalry with Tony Bloom. Uh, what did you make of it? Two brilliant goals for Ivan Tony. Yeah, I guess for, for people that, that don't know, I should give a, a very brief rundown. Um, but Matthew Benham, Brentford's owner, and Tony Bloom, Brighton's owner, uh, were former colleagues. Um, Tony Bloom, you know, kind of had his own gambling business, his own gambling company. And, you know, Benham kind of worked under him for a few years and then kind of left and, and, and did his own thing and set up Smart Odds. And there's been this, a little bit of a rivalry between the pair of them ever since. So they, they've known each other, I think, for, for over 20 years. So the fact that they're two former colleagues who have both gone on to become the owners of the clubs they supported when they were children is quite rem remarkable in and of itself. Uh, but this little rival rivalry they have certainly adds an edge to the story. So uh, Tony Bloom doesn't sit in the director's box when he goes to, to Brentford Stadium. He sits in the away end and, uh, you know, waves his flag around and stuff. And there's photos of when... Brighton beat Brentford with a last-minute winner last year of him going crazy in the um, crazy in the away end. So uh, I thought it was quite interesting that Ivan Tony decided to celebrate right in front of the the, the, the Brighton fans on, on Friday night. But it, it was a good win for Brentford. They hadn't looked particularly good in their in their last couple of games. They obviously got hammered five-one by Newcastle, and it's something I, I get asked about constantly. Should Ivan Tony go to the, go to the World Cup with England? And I think that that first goal in particular, the very nice backheel flick. It's just a reminder that on his day, he's quite like an inventive footballer who can do some some different things. So it, it was great entertainment on Friday night, for sure. Yeah, I mean, with Tammy Abraham failing to score again for Roma, yeah, the, those questions are going to continue to get louder and louder um, until that until that changes, I think. Uh, Potable continues to work, talking of Chelsea. Chelsea saw off Aston Villa 2-0, although Kepa had work to do here. He's back as Chelsea's number one. Do you see that one coming? No, I didn't. Um, and some of the saves he made in this game were were phenomenal. It the treble felt save like, in the first half is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, they were absolutely crazy, and it it felt like he was a player who was destined to leave the club under under a little bit of a cloud, and that his his kind of famous moments or his defining moments at Chelsea was was going to be that 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 cup final where he he refused to kind of come off the bench. Felt like he'd been totally usurped by Eduard Mendy, and I guess he had been. But it feels like he's been given a a second shot under under Graham Potter. But although Aston Villa certainly created some some really good chances, you have to you have to you can't even question Tyron Mings for that first goal. He's made a mistake. You have to yeah. question what Martinez was doing for Mason Mount's free kick because. Look, I'm not a goalkeeping expert. I don't even like going in goal when I'm I'm playing five-a-side football, but feels like he, he completely misjudged that. So felt like Villa kind of handed handed those three points to Chelsea a little bit, and I'm sure that only increases the pressure on, on Steven Gerrard. Yeah, I mean, rumours today, obviously, that, that yeah. 
Villa are willing to move heaven and earth, I think it was the phrase, um, in order to secure Maurizio Pochettino. So Gerard on very thin ice. Now they come to the cottage though, Jay, on Thursday night. Uh... That, could be, that could be crucial. We'll see. We'll see how that one pans out. Uh, Manchester United and Newcastle United played out a nil-nil draw, but not one without controversy. Disallowed goals, non-penalty calls. Both teams will feel they justifiably could have won this, but a good game for one without goals. Just quickly, should that Cristiano Ronaldo goal have stood? Uh, with Nick Pope? Yeah. Oh, see, I, I, you can't, that's not a yes or no question. That's like, I've got to give like five minutes of, of background. <laughs> Do you know what? Yes, because I think he's just being clever. So I think he, because he gets booked for it as well, right? I think that's super harsh. I think he's just acted on instincts. I think he's completely done the right thing. Um, I think he caught Newcastle out, but then at the same time, you can understand that maybe the, the defender was just flicking it back to, to Nick Pope. So I think he did the right thing gambling. Yeah, I don't think he should have been booked. I think that was unfair. Yeah. Um, I don't think yeah. he should stand, although it, I don't think he should stand on the current rules. So I do think that maybe in we should maybe make those goals stand in order that people actually start listening to the whistle when it's blown. So yeah. they actually play to yeah. it as opposed to, as opposed to, but I do think he's just trying to kick it back to the keepers to take the free kick. Um, but with that, it's time for us to call it a day here on the Athletic Soccer Show. We hope you've enjoyed our roundup of the big stories across Europe this weekend. And all the stuff for me to do is say thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to Mr. Jay Harris. My pleasure as always. And thank you to you for, for flying back from, from sunny Spain and, and doing this. What a hero. Well, I'm, I'm missing the Pinchos and Calamochos already. And if anyone's <laughs> thinking about going to Bilbao for a football game, I will highly recommend it. One of the greatest football cities I have ever been in. A sensational place. Uh, I've been Jack Collins. This has been your weekend review. We will see you next week. Take it easy. Yeah.